0: Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza
1: and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com TA Connections, the industry's most comprehensive airline lodging and crew logistics program, taconnections.com Clear, a leader in touchless travel. Learn more at clearme.com slash airlines. And Seabury Capital Group, Global Reach, Global Scale, seaburyCapital.com. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com.
0: Hello to all of our airline aficionados. This is Chris Chimes. Glad to have you join us for this week's Airlines Confidential. I'm joined by my co-host Ben Baldanza. Ben, how's it going?
2: Hey, Chris. I hope everyone's having a great week. We keep finding great guests to join us and bring our listeners interesting conversations. And this week is no exception. We've got Barry Eccleston, the former president and CEO of Airbus Americas with us. I want to save plenty of time for that conversation. But Chris, if you can first take us to the top news of the week, as usual. Yep,
0: yep, yep. Airline news it is. But we're going to go fast, like you said, so we can save time for Barry. Here goes. We'll start with earnings in the U.S., And I'm just going to say it, Delta turns a profit. Ben,
2: take it away. Well, I was surprised they made a profit, but wasn't totally surprised. Delta has always been ahead of their sort of primary competition, American and United, around being profitable. They also have an older fleet of airplanes, which means they don't have as much interest expense related to the debt of those airplanes, which allows them that. And the other thing is in Delta's network, they dominate their hubs more than their biggest competitors do. By that, I mean that they're bigger in Atlanta, Detroit, Minneapolis, LaGuardia, increasingly Seattle, than comparatively American is in their hubs and United is in their hubs. What that means is they don't compete for as much of their revenue as the other big guys do. So the combination of that stronger network and a little lower cost base among high cost airlines doesn't surprise me that they came out of the gate first with sort of the first profit among the big guys. And we're
0: recording this before American United or Southwest report uh, this week. So we'll need to watch those results. Have to wonder if there's a little bit of Delta variant overhang here with the market not seeming all that impressed with the Delta results. And then I noticed that Ed Bastian kind of not kind of, but he's clearly signaled to labor that there's still a long road ahead, You know, saying something to the effect of we need to get this company stabilized before we start talking about wage increases. So I don't think anybody is suggesting we're out of the woods, but that's a nice way to start the quarter. So let's go across the pond real quick. The EU unveiled a sweeping plan to address climate change last week. Airlines don't escape the plan. Some might say they don't escape the pain. Most notably, the industry's long-held exemption for fuel tax is on the chopping block. But here's the rub. Cargo operators would be exempt, as are executive jets. Ben, let a rip.
2: Well, this strikes me as highly political. I mean, to say that you're going to tax aviation fuel on commercial flights, but not on executive jets... That says, on the one hand, you want to disincentivize people to fly when they could otherwise drive or take a train. But if you make a lot of money and can have your own plane or rent your own plane, go ahead and fly and probably burn more carbon per seat than a commercial airplane does. So I think that's just kind of amazing. And on the cargo side, I guess that's just a recognition of the fact that if you raise the tax on fuel for cargo airplanes, you're effectively raising the cost of lots of goods because many goods are carried by airplane. Not all, of course, but many are. So if you make it more expensive to get goods from here to there, you make all the goods more expensive. So this seems to me sort of, we want to address what is politically expedient, but save what where our money comes from maybe in the executives who pay things and where our we don't want to necessarily pay more for our cup of coffee or our gallon of milk at the grocery store. It's really interesting to me, Chris.
0: Yeah, politically I think it's kind of a stumble out of the gate or maybe somebody thought, well, let's let's not create a unified force against this and, and have some carve-outs so that people stay out of the fight. I, I don't know what they were thinking. But you've got to wonder how Pratt & Whitney's GTF engines can help airlines with the added costs of any proposed fuel hikes. With up to 20% lower fuel burn, 50% fewer regulated emissions, and 75% smaller noise footprint, GTF engines have no comparison. This revolutionary geared turbofan engine is allowing airlines and airports to open new routes and fly more people farther and with less fuel and much
2: lower noise. Learn more at pwgtf.com. And then, Chris, as we head back to the U.S., we talked a few weeks ago about the outlook for smaller regional jets. Last week, United followed Delta's lead and announced they were taking out their single-class, all-economy regional jets from its newer hub and most other New York flying, although there will still be some smaller RJs between LaGuardia and Dulles. What do you think of that?
0: Well, I'm interested in your point of view, but you know, I don't think anyone was surprised. Scott Kirby was quoted saying last week. I think I saw that leisure travel fully rebounded. So, and that he also expects business travel to get stronger in September as kids go back to school, more offices open up, and kind of get back to normal. So, whether to accommodate as many lower yield leisure travelers or to accommodate them, plus more business travelers. you got to get the larger aircraft on these routes, especially into capacity-constrained airports like the New York area. So, uh, you know, it it makes sense. It's probably a smart move,
2: and I think we're going to see more of it. But, Ben, I'm interested in your take. I agree, and, and I think the real key there is the restricted airports, almost the only way you can grow in New York is by putting more seats per departure because with either slot controls at LaGuardia and Kennedy or a lot of gate constraints at Newark, it's hard to add a lot more flights or add a lot of new flights. So all you can do is get bigger airplanes. And so it doesn't surprise me that New York would be the city where you first see this change out from RJs to bigger airplanes. Now United's recent order contemplates replacing a lot of 50 seat jets with 150 seat planes. And other than New York, it'll be interesting to see where else they do this. We'll be right back with our conversation with Barry Eccleston. But first we wanna thank Clear, which makes travel safer and easier. Become a member of Clear and you'll enjoy frictionless journeys when you use Clear's home to gate feature, which lets you know exactly the best time to leave for the airport. Plus Clear's signature experience helps you move seamlessly through airport security where will you go get back out there with clear and no better time to join giving the incredibly busy summer we're having we're pleased to welcome another great guest to the show and in this case one with a unique global perspective across the entire airline and aerospace sectors it's my pleasure to welcome Barry Eccleston the former president and CEO of Airbus Americas Barry welcome to the show
1: Well, thank you, Ben, uh, and Chris, also. Uh, Great to be with you guys, uh, and I really appreciate the opportunity to chat today.
2: Well, it's great to have you here. So, Barry, with that
0: uh, great accent, there must be a a lot of history to that. Uh, Tell us a little bit about your background and uh, your expertise in aviation.
1: Okay, Um, well, I I came from the UK originally. You could probably guess that uh, from my accent. I went to Loughborough University in England and I got a degree in aeronautical engineering, uh, joined the industry and and basically stayed in the airplane industry uh, my entire career. Uh, So I'm I'm sort of a total aviation guy and uh, some might say I have kerosene in my blood. I spent 29 years with Rolls-Royce in the engines business. Then I joined Fairchild Dornier in the regional jet business, uh, at least until they went bankrupt. And I I learned a lot about bankruptcy. I then uh, joined Honeywell, worked for Honeywell in Europe and also in Phoenix uh, in the engines business again. uh, And then was recruited by Airbus to be uh, president and CEO of Airbus in North America and subsequently also uh, Latin America. And I was in that job for over 12 years because it was the uh, the best job in the airplane industry in, in my opinion. I retired three years ago, having spent almost 50 years in the business. Um, And since then, I've sort of stayed involved, but on on my time and my terms. um, I'm on the board right now of of Wizz Air in in Europe. Um, I do a lot of work with Loughborough University, my old alma mater. and I'm on the board at uh, Vaughan College of Aeronautics in in New York. My wife and family have have, uh, supported me throughout this time. We've worked in six different countries on three different continents. So, um, as you said earlier on, Chris, I've, I've had a, a fairly global aviation experience and uh, and I've loved every minute of it.
2: Well, that's fascinating, Barry. And it makes me want to ask this first question. Within at least the aerospace business, there was a somewhat famous book called The Sporty Game that uh, talked about the risks that manufacturers took in designing and making airframes. So I think no one would be better than you to ask was that a fair name for that book? And do you think it really is a sporty game?
1: Oh, absolutely. John Newhouse, of course, wrote the book. Uh, It was in 1982, so it's almost 40 years ago. And if if you read through the book again now, you will find that pretty much uh, all the principles that he brought forward uh, are still valid today. And and it certainly still is the sporty game today. Um, I I was privileged to meet John, in fact, when he wrote his second book uh, about Airbus and Boeing, um, I did quite a bit of work with him on that. And, and I have actually have a, um, a personally signed copy by John uh, of the Sporty Game here here in my bookshelf. But I think it's it really is the definitive work on the workings of the uh, commercial airplane business. Um, it became almost the branding, if you like, uh, of our business, and I think it still is. Um, and I think if you look at some of the things going on in the commercial airplane business today, for example should Boeing launch a new airplane, just as one example. These, these sort of decisions truly are a bet the company sort of decision. Uh, they were back when John wrote the original book. And I think they're still equally sporty decisions today. Um, and there's many of them that the industry faces. And these are big decisions that need to be made by big, experienced people, almost larger than life people. Uh, our industry still has many of those. Um, so, yeah, the sporty game, it still is.
2: So Airbus, while you were there, made enormous inroads, especially in the North and South American markets, but really worldwide. How was Airbus able to sort of compete against what, at least
1: at Airbus's beginnings, was a much larger Boeing? So I'll, I'm, I'm going to give you sort of four the answer has four legs to the stool. First of all, uh, I think once once Airbus got started and was standing on its own feet, then um, it, the, the, the concept of beat Boeing um, became our mantra, became the Airbus mantra. Uh, and indeed, it brought together the French and the Germans and the Brits and the Spanish. If you think about it, Europe had been trying previously to successfully do joint venture programs for quite a while, but most of them didn't happen. Uh, but this one did, and and, it, and I believe it happened not in not solely, but in large part, because everybody rallied around the flag, and the flag was called Beat Boeing. Do you remember in the old days, the Avis slogan was, we're number two, we try harder. Well, that kind of like was where we were at um, in Airbus. We we knew we were number two, but we knew we could become number one, uh, and we tried harder. So that, that, that's, if you like, the first leg of the stall. Uh, the second leg of the stall is innovation. Uh, Airbus has had a... Uh, a spirit of innovation ever since day one, and and still does, I believe. The single best example of that uh, is, of course, the A320 aeroplane, which Airbus brought to the market with innovations such as side-stick controller, um, fly-by-wire, a number of other innovations, all of which made the A320 the airplane it is today, and in large part uh, is the core of the success of Airbus. So um, leg number two in the stool: innovation. The third leg is, Do Airbus conducted its sales and marketing the old fashioned way. It got good people uh, and formed good people into good sales and marketing teams. And then it went to the customers and took care of the customers. It, it, we, we, we always tried to find out what can we do to help you, the customer. We had very much, um, I think, a sort of a we we want to we want to help you the customer to help ourselves sort of attitude, uh, and I, I call this the old-fashioned way, and then the fourth way I think we did it and probably the most important of the of the four ways was um, having great products, and here in particular I'm thinking of the A320 family, followed now by the A320neo family, the A330, the A350. Uh, these have all been really, really good products, and th- apart, apart from giving the customers what they need, it also provides another flag for Airbus to rally around internally to rally around uh, the program, the product, the airplane it becomes a great visible uh, image, if you like, of what we're trying to do together. So, to summarise, we we try harder, um, beat Boeing, we had a lot of innovation. Uh, we had good people, good teams, and, and a, a good attitude to customer care. And most important of all, I think we had some great products. Oh, I, there's one thing I should add. Um, we had one secret weapon, and that was a guy called John Leahy. Um, many of your listeners, I'm sure, will either know John or have heard of John. Uh, I, I cannot underestimate the role that John played in bringing Airbus to the marketplace and the success it had in the marketplace. Uh, John is now retired. Uh, he's a great friend of mine. We we see a lot of each other now, uh, but the the job he did at Airbus uh, in developing the market presence was fantastic.
0: That's a great recap, Barry. And you know, it's always nice to hear people look back fondly and proudly about their accomplishments and uh, and the people you work with. And so uh, I'm sure our listeners are going to enjoy that. Um, as you uh, referenced at the introduction, Barry, you spent a long time in the engine business before coming to Airbus. What were the lessons learned uh, from the engine sector and what was similar or different about trying to sell aircraft?
1: Well, first of all, I was of the belief, still am of the belief that the engines business is actually more important uh, in aviation than maybe even the airplane business. Uh, And I can say that having worked for two engine companies and, and two airplane companies that when when you think about it, nearly all of the performance improvements, uh, be it speed, be it uh, fuel efficiency, uh, all of this comes from the engine. Uh, Yes, of course, aerodynamics are important, materials are important, but in terms of the performance of the airplane, the the, the central core to that is the engine. Uh, Secondly, um, the engine guys have to start developing their engines and the technology for their engines way before the airplane exists. So the engine guys have to be really smart they have to guess not just what the airline business wants in 10 years time but what airplanes are the airplane guys going to build to meet those airline needs in 10 years time and therefore what engines do i need to be working on today uh, to meet this product need that i really don't know what it's going to be but i have to start trying to figure it out and start it now so i think the the engine guys have a more difficult role in that they have to start a few years ahead of the airplane guys do. The third point, of course, is that uh, the engine business model is very different from the airplane model. Um, In the airplane development model, you spend a lot of time and money developing an airplane, uh, and then you sell it and you get paid for it. Um, In the engines business model, you spend a lot of time and money developing an engine, then you have to sell it to the airplane guy. He has to choose to put your engine on his airplane, which may or may not work. Uh, And then when the airplane's out in the marketplace, uh, an A320, for example, with two engine choices, then the engine guy has to sell it again. He has to go through the whole sales process again, uh, getting the airline to choose uh, his engine and and put it on the airplanes they're buying. And then fourthly and finally, um, the engine guy then has to wait 15 years to collect his money. Because of course, it's, uh, it's very much of an annuity that the engine guy is selling on day one which uh, really is the power by the hour agreement. And he waits 15 years to collect his money. And in that 15 years, anything can happen, as we have seen uh, in the last 18 months. COVID has totally decimated the engine guys' business models because nobody's flying, so there's no engine maintenance, so the engine guys are not collecting their revenue. Um, So this is a very, very different, but a very risky business model that the engine guys have to go through. Uh, The actual selling of the engines uh, employs the same techniques, um, good people, good teams, good products, and customer care. But the business model that then ensues from that uh, is very different from the engine guy. And we're seeing that in particular, I think, at the moment, Rolls-Royce is seeing that because, of course, of the disappearance of the uh, long-range airline business, which is uh, most of the Rolls-Royce business right now. So, yeah, and en- en- engines are an even sportier game than the airplanes are. Uh, and I think John Newhouse made reference to that as well.
0: You know, Barry, as you were talking, I was thinking about you know a whole generation of young adults coming out of college and graduate school who think of like a product life cycle is like six to eight months of you know, developing an app or some IT solution and getting it to market. Uh, they probably can't fathom what's involved in aircraft engine and, and aircraft uh, manufacturing.
1: Well, it's absolutely right, and, and I, I've been reading some reports that the, um, the Boeing B fifty two bomber, in service with the U.S. Air Force, is probably going to get to be a hundred years old before some of those airplanes are retired. That is just unthinkable. Um, and as you rightly point out, uh, uh, someone coming out of college today thinks in terms of a, a product life cycle generally of less than a year.
2: Absolutely amazing. I know already that our listeners must be enjoying this. Uh, Barry, under your leadership, Airbus did some things that really emphasize one of those four legs of the stool that you spoke about, which is you became very attractive to the low cost marketplace. You found ways to get more seats on your airplanes really pushed the fact that having a wider aisle than the 737s could allow for faster boarding and deplaning and things. How important has catering, not only to the low cost market, but to the different sectors that have come into the airline business, catering to each of them uniquely, how important has that been or how important is it to manufacturers now?
1: I could give you an answer both ways. I could tell you it's really important, of course, to understand each of the different segments and have a product that caters to that segment. And indeed, for most of the last 10 years, uh, that has been the uh, mantra, that's been the the road, if you like, that the industry has followed. But I could also give you a counter view, which is the fact that uh, uh, the money money right now is coming from the ultra-low-cost carriers, Uh, and that's the single aisle business. Uh, uh, About 85% of all the airplanes being ordered, being built and being sold uh, are in the single aisle business. And that is in large part due to the rapid growth uh, of the ultra low cost carrier. Now, uh, of course, Airbus didn't invent, um, didn't didn't create the low cost carrier business with our airplane. Uh, Southwest had already done that. Herb Keller had already already did that with the the seven thirty seven. So we have to give full credit to uh, to the seven thirty seven and to Boeing and and to Herb for pointing the way with the low cost carrier business model. But where where it really came into its own was the arrival of the what I'm going to call the ultra low cost carrier, the ULCC, as the industry calls them. Uh, and with the ultra-low-cost carrier, then having the lowest seat mile cost is the gospel. Uh, that becomes the holy grail. Um, and where Airbus was able to score, I think, was to uh, to bring to market uh, the airplane, which today is recognized as having the lowest seat mile cost uh, to the A321neo. Um, the airplane can take up to 200. It's certified for up to 240 passengers, uh, albeit with 28-inch pitch. Um, And there is no lower seat mile cost aeroplane existing than that aeroplane in the market today. Uh, And that that therefore has led to Airbus's uh, success. You you said it was under my leadership, it wasn't. Uh, I was part of a team, a large team that did all this. Um, But the A321neo has really given Airbus its leadership position in this very profitable, ultra low cost carrier business. Um, The ULCC today, are about between 15 and 30 percent of the airline uh, revenue passenger miles, probably growing to about 50 percent over the next 15 years. They are the the ULCCs today are extremely well positioned uh, to capture the market coming out of COVID. Uh, of course, they primarily appeal to the leisure market. This is where the market recovery is. They are positioned to win business, particularly in Europe, when business from carriers who are less financially um, uh, favoured at the moment. So I, I can see blue sky, a lot of blue skies ahead for the continuing growth of the ultra low cost carrier business in all parts of the world. And this will primarily benefit uh, the A320 Neo, the A321 Neo, uh, and the larger versions of the Max Aeroplane once that's uh, back in full production.
2: We'll be back with Barry Eccleston in just a moment. But first, we want to thank Travel Alliance and Hotel Connections who have come together to become TA Connections. TA Connections provides an intelligent, integrated, and flexible suite of applications that allow airlines to deploy an industry-leading mix of augmentation and automations tools, configurable and personalized to your unique needs. Learn more at taconnections.com. TA Connections is a fleet core company, the world's leading provider of technology and services for crew and passenger logistics management. So, Barry, um,
0: we talk a fair amount about uh, the Airbus Boeing competition uh, on this podcast, but uh, we'll be interested in your perspective on how that competition has both helped and hurt each company over the last decade.
1: Well, Airbus was uh, created uh, and developed and grew and has been successful driven by competition. Uh, I mentioned earlier on uh, the flag that we all rallied around, uh, beat Boeing. Um, and, and and you could argue that one day when we woke up and we had beaten Boeing, that is to say we delivered in a, in a given year more airplanes than Boeing, um, that's when some of the Airbus challenges uh, began to come to the fore. Uh, but the, the spur of competition is really what... Uh, what it, it's been at the, at the root of everything that Airbus has done, and it's it's really created a very successful Airbus, and along with it, um, some very successful airplane products, uh, like the A320 family we referred to, 330, 350, and so on. I think also Airbus b- being number two, um, I was going to say humble. Humble is not the right word because it, it, it doesn't always work to be humble. But I think where we were, we were, we were respectful of the fact that we, we had a really strong competitor. I think the inverse of that coin, of course, is that for many years, Boeing believed that they were uh, the world's best airplane manufacturer. They did not believe that uh, anybody, Airbus or anybody else, uh, could catch up or even beat them. And at times, uh, and I hope my friends at Boeing don't mind me suggesting this, um, and I do have a lot of friends at Boeing, uh, Stan Deal and I used to work together. So uh, I think at times, from what I hear from the customers, Boeing behaved a little bit uh, arrogantly. Uh, and I, I use the word uh, deliberately, uh, but I, but I mean, what I mean by that is that um, we, we saw examples where Boeing felt it was their entitlement to always have the business of a given customer, Uh, And they did not believe that um, Airbus was going to be able to win that customer. Uh, Boeing clearly do not have that attitude right now, obviously. Um, They have learned many lessons, uh, particularly since the American Airlines decision, which, by the way, was July 20th, 2011. So on Tuesday this week, it will be the 10th anniversary of the American (laughs) Airlines A320 Boeing MAX joint announcement which really launched the Max Aeroplane. And I think Boeing have learned a lot in that 10 years since the Max Aeroplane was launched. They're still a great and mighty company. Airbus want Boeing to be a great and mighty company. Our business needs Boeing to be a great and mighty company. Um, So as i said many times to my friends at Boeing, we wish you all the best in recovering from the challenges that you're facing right now, because the industry needs a, a, a strong Boeing competition, I think has created a lot of great products. Uh, on Airbus side, for example, um, the 737 led to Airbus creating the 320. Um, on the other side of the coin, the a330 led to Boeing creating the 787, a, a great aeroplane, notwithstanding the, the FAA issues uh, on some of the manufacturing right now, which which Boeing will get past and it will still be a great aeroplane. At the same time, that competition can lead to launching airplanes, which perhaps we shouldn't have done. And the great example on the Airbus side is the A380. Um, Airbus felt the 747 was Boeing's cash cow, and Airbus needed a competitor to the 747. Uh, Airbus presumed that the trajectory, the arc of uh, airline growth would always be the same, bigger and better and faster and further. Uh, and so created the A380. Uh, And we we know uh, now the rest of that story uh, in hindsight. Likewise, we could say the MAX. Boeing decided to launch a a further derivative of a 50-year-old airplane in the 737 MAX, when in hindsight, uh, they probably would have been better off to have launched a a brand new airplane uh, in response to American's request. Uh, But they didn't, they went with the MAX, and we have seen the limitations uh, that occur eventually Uh, as we just continue to develop the uh, the same old designs. So sometimes new designs are required, um, and then, of course, back into the sporty game. Um, One other comment on Airbus-Boeing competition. I think the 15 years spent fighting the WTO um, uh, campaigns against each other was a complete waste of time, effort, and money. Um, uh, I I felt at the very beginning it would... It would never lead to any any good of anything, and it hasn't, Uh, and all it has done is put a lot of money into lawyers' pockets, and it has diverted attention from where the real competition now is, which is, of course, uh, China. And Airbus and Boeing, I think, have finally woken up to the fact that they need to perhaps be more focused on the competition from China than the competition from each other. So I've really been extremely disappointed by having to play a part in the WTO dispute for the last 15 years, totally unnecessarily.
0: If we can follow up on your comments on China real quick, Barry. What are the opportunities there as a market, but then also as it relates to what you alluded to, the potential for a manufacturing competitor?
1: It's a really fascinating question. And I think uh, this is another one of the sporty game questions for the next 10 years. Um, is is China going to be successful in its quest to develop uh, initially a single aisle airplane to compete with the MAX and the 320neo and then subsequently uh, a wide-body airplane together with Russia uh, to compete with the 7.8 and the 350 and the 777X? I tend to believe that China can do this. Um, There seems to be two camps amongst the industry uh, observers. Um, I fall in the camp that is... That believes that China is going to make this work and is going to make it work before uh, we generally think they can or will. Um, uh, others, my very good friend Richard Abu Lafia, I have a lot of respect for Richard. He, he's in the camp that um, it's going to be a lot more difficult for China to break into the market than they think. Uh, but I tend to I tend to think they they will break into the market. The C919 doesn't need to be a great aeroplane; it just needs to be a good enough aeroplane. Uh, That is to say, initially good enough for the Chinese domestic airlines. uh, And we are already seeing them making commitments to this aeroplane. And it it needs to be good enough that uh, it's safe. We all know China has an extremely good record on safety. It needs to have a a record of being reliable. Uh, Well, I guess if you build enough spare airplanes and enough spare engines, then you're going to have one around if, if one of them breaks down. And it needs to be comfortable for the passengers inside, which I think it will be. Um, So then the the real question is, can the c 1919 break into the rest of the global marketplace together with perhaps some Chinese geopolitical influence? Um, And when they do that, how will they do that? And here's where I get the most concerned. Um, It is not so much that the C919 is gonna be a great aeroplane, but I'm mostly concerned about when when China comes with an aeroplane that is very low price, has very, very cheap financing and has very, very low pre-delivery payments and deposits that strikes at the heart of the Airbus and Boeing businesses uh, which are so heavily dependent on the the MAX and the 320neo family. Uh, And I think the 919 has the ability uh, to compete, not necessarily as an airplane, but as a business model. And I think that's gonna be a real threat. People say, oh, no, it's not going to happen because China is still dependent on Western uh, technology. Um, Are they really? Uh, Have have you looked at some of the Chinese military airplanes recently? Uh, They're they're not so bad, you know. Um, uh, All all the brightest aeronautical minds in China, and there are many, many of them, uh, go into the military business uh, because that's where the government has wanted them to be and still wants them to be but there's no reason why some of that expertise cannot be uh, transferred into the commercial business and they can do the same sort of job. Uh, The engine, of course, is the most difficult thing, as we talked earlier on. Developing uh, a piece of machinery that has very high temperatures, very high speeds, and very high pressures, and very low weight uh, is a neat trick, and that's going to be the real key. But you you don't have to have uh, an engine that lasts 40,000 hours on the wing like the CFM does, you simply have to have an engine that provides um, good enough thrust and sufficiently uh, attractive fuel burn. Uh, And then you can change it if you want every 5,000 hours. Um, So I believe that they will master engine technology probably sooner than people think. Until that happens, then geopolitical situation will really drive the Chinese marketplace Um, and the Airbus approach is uh, do final assembly in China. Um, The Boeing approach has been to try and use political leverage. Both of those approaches seem to be working good enough for now, but I don't think they're, they're going to work much longer once the 919 actually gets into service. So I I tend to be um, in in the camp that says China is a real competitive threat and it is going to be a significant part of the global marketplace in every way uh, in 10 years' time.
2: Ensuring that the industry will stay sporty, of course.
1: (laughs) Exactly. I don't know who the the Chinese equivalent of John Newhouse is, but we will see a Chinese sporty game book, I'm sure, in, in 10 years' time.
2: Well, as we wrap up, Barry, let's look at the crystal ball for a minute and tell us what you think about sort of emerging issues in the commercial aircraft manufacturer space, specifically the ideas of maybe a single pilot commercial airplane and also maybe the use of alternative fuels and the way for the industry to be more sustainable. What is the future of this industry in those areas?
1: Well, uh, uh, as we said earlier on, our industry has always thrived on innovation and will continue to do so, providing we can get um, the, the labour force to come into the industry as opposed to cyber security or artificial intelligence or whatever. Um, but if, we, if we, assuming that we can keep the labour force flowing into the business, then innovation will continue to be the driving force, um, single pilot operation. I am a believer in single pilot commercial airplane operation. I became a believer almost 20 years ago. I was working for Honeywell, and one day the guy said, we're going to go out to Yuma, Arizona, and we're going to look at the operation of an airplane called the Predator, which I really hadn't heard of too much. I'd heard the name but didn't know what it was. So we pulled out to an extremely hot desert south of Yuma, and there is a Predator about to be launched, controlled by a guy, one guy sitting in, in a porter cabin, and he flies this airplane up and down the mexican border um looking for uh, obviously illegal immigration across the border uh, and i was absolutely blown away by the capability of this pilot this airplane the we the industry, and that was 20 years ago we the industry have all the technology required today uh to put in place perfectly safe pilotless airplanes and of course we do just not in the large commercial airplane industry so a stepping stone to that point, I believe, will be single pilot operation. Uh, it will start in, in the freight business, in the package carrier business. Uh, we know that people like FedEx are already working on these concepts in fairly large airplanes. We know that uh, people like Cessna are working on small airplanes uh, doing the same thing. So I'm a believer in, in single pilot technology. Uh, now, th- think, think about this. Uh, you, you, Ben, and I, and, and maybe Chris, uh, we often go travel between Washington and New York. And often, uh, much to the chagrin of my airline friends, uh, I will get on the Acela, on the Amtrak train. Um, so we we jump on the Acela and we speed out of Washington up to New York. And this train does 120 miles an hour, 150 miles an hour in some points. And it weighs about the same as uh, a fully laden Airbus A330. And it has the same number of passengers. Um, actually, no, it weighs about the same as an A380, and, and it has the same number of passengers as an A330. Um, so it has the same kinetic energy as an Airbus aeroplane, but it only has one driver. Uh, I think they call him an engineer. It um, doesn't, need, doesn't need two drivers to do that. Um, we have the technology today to do single-pilot aeroplane. It is just that the, um, I'll call it the social system of aviation and the regulatory system of aviation Uh, is not yet ready to accommodate that. So, yeah, I I believe it will come within the next 10 years, probably in the next five years in a freight airplane and possibly in small commercial airplanes in the next 10 years. Um, The fuels, well, of course, this is a tremendous debate at the moment, um, uh, driven by the need to uh, dramatically reduce the environmental environmental impact of the industry. This pressure is coming not just from governments, not just from consumers, but also from the investors. Uh, If you're an airline, you will be having a board meeting or an AGM where you'll be discussing investor pressure to know what are you doing about reducing your emissions. So the industry has to address it. And the immediate reaction from Europe was to go to hydrogen. That is right now a bridge too far. The the infrastructure required for hydrogen um, is many years away. I, I know that Airbus is talking about 2035. I think that's to uh, satisfy a French government request. Uh, I think more practically, uh, use of hydrogen can take place in 2040 or more likely 2050. Uh, and all that assumes that uh, producing the hydrogen uh, is going to be carbon neutral in the first place. At the moment, we, we, don't, know, we don't have enough capacity to produce hydrogen into fuel without having a very negative impact on the electrical supply base. Batteries, well right now today's battery technology uh, gives you a power to weight ratio that is about 2% of kerosene. Um, So uh, batteries are really not a practical alternative and will not be for the next 20 to 30 years. So there's only two ways that you can address the environmental situation today. Uh, One is to order new, more fuel efficient aeroplanes like the A321neo, like the MAX 9 and 10, which is the only thing that an airline CEO can actually do today uh, to have any impact. Uh, And then secondly, uh, I am a believer in sustainable aviation fuels. We've all heard the the saying that there's, uh, if we used all the SAF that exists today, we'd use it all up in one day, or whatever the number is, It, it doesn't matter. Today, SAF, can only provide about 1% of the airline needs. SAF, I think, is the most practical uh, new alternative fuel. Uh, We know how to run engines on it already, and all we have to do is to figure out how to produce it and produce it economically, and have the incentives to do that. So I believe the way forward in the next five to 10 years is um, sustainable aviation fuel. Uh, In the next 20 years, maybe hydrogen. Uh, In the next 25 to 30 years, maybe electrics or more likely some mixture of all of the above.
2: Well, Barry, this has been absolutely amazing. Your experience and intelligence and just views of this industry are really spectacular and I'm sure our listeners are really going to enjoy this. There's also an amazing optimism in your answers, which is so great to hear, especially for someone who's worked in the industry and in so many capacities in the industry as you have had. Thank you so much for joining Airlines Confidential and sharing all of this with
1: us. Well, thank you, Ben and Chris, for giving me the opportunity to share my views with, with you and your audience. And thank you both for all the work that you do for our industry as well. R- really appreciate it.
0: Thanks, Barry. Th- those weren't views. Those were intellectual lessons. So
1: thanks again <laughs> for joining us. So, <laughs> Well, thanks, guys. And uh, good luck. Thanks,
2: Barry.
0: Ben, thanks for reaching out to Barry. I enjoyed that conversation. And I hope our listeners will too.
2: Well, I certainly enjoyed that conversation, and I hope our listeners did as well. Barry has a wealth of experience and had really interesting insights. Well, now it's time for our listener questions. Remember, you can leave a question on our voicemail at 202-964-0177, or you can email us questions at airlinesconfidential.com, or visit our website at airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. We're available on all the major podcast platforms, and you can ask Amazon Alexa or Google Assist to turn us on. Just say "Play the Airlines Confidential Podcast."
0: Ben, our first question is from Benji in Southlake, Texas. Ben, did it, anyone ever call you Benji? <laughs> I, I'm not. I'm not feeling it. But hi, guys. I'm a high school student and an unapologetic Av geek. So I appreciate your podcast. My question is about whether you feel as though Southwest has been caught with its pants down, unprepared for the recovery. Yes, they've added 17 new cities during the pandemic, but at the expense of frequency in their other markets. So as demand returns, I can't help but wonder if this is weakening their position in several other cities. They added Miami, for example, but were quickly outmatched by Spirit and Frontier. And while they made airplane orders of the MAX, they seem to be too few and not soon enough to rebuild their network. Too few airplanes, too few flight crews, and no apparent quick resolution either makes it look like they were caught off guard or they weren't prepared. What do you think? Thanks for the show, and I'd love to be in Mr. Baldanza's class one day. Ben, there's clearly a new generation of Geeks coming along.
2: Well, that's great. And as Barry said, we're going to need people like Benji to come work in this industry and help us innovate. Well, thank you, Benji, and you'd be welcome in my class someday, and I would love to see you there virtually or live. In terms of Southwest, I don't I don't think they were completely caught with their pants down. I think that they had some unique issues to deal with. Southwest's business model prior to the pandemic was based on high frequency in and among a lot of big cities, which made them a real favorite, especially for small business travelers. They weren't as good at carrying sort of corporate business who may demand more services than Southwest offered on board or more global network than Southwest had. But for small businesses, Southwest has been great and been the airline that has served that group the best. My thinking is that that business has been shortened and reduced Almost as much as the corporate business side. So Southwest just can't afford to fly the high frequency. You know, they can't fly as many times between Dallas and Houston without all that small business or between Chicago and St. Louis or L.A. and San Francisco. So they got to find some other places to put the airplanes. And I think that's what they're doing. I'm not sure if their order book is too weak for the amount of growth that's going to happen, but they, like the whole industry, is watching to see what's going to happen with business travel. And also, like the whole industry, they're saying, where can we put our assets right now to make some money? So I get that they've sort of pulled back from some of their traditional frequency, but I think that's because a lot of the traffic that used to fly them on that frequency isn't there right now. And whether Miami was a good call or not, and whether they have too few maxes on order or not enough, we'll have to see sort of how those things work out. So every airline has had its own challenges in an environment that is really uncertain. And Southwest had a deal with theirs specifically related to the small business person and of the small business travel. And I actually think they've done a pretty good job with it. But I think it's amazing, Benji, that you're in high school and thinking about issues like that. We really need you in this industry, Benji.
0: Yeah, I love Benji's enthusiasm. I love his strategic thinking. I'll just say that there's a cottage industry built around trying to find fault with things Southwest does. And it's not a booming business because they don't make a lot of mistakes. So I'll just leave it at that. And then, Ben, we've got a voicemail question from Matt in Rochester, New York. And it's kind of connected to our earlier discussion about RJs in New
1: York. Hi, it's Matt in Rochester, New York. And my question is regarding airplane gauging. In other words, is it better to fly four flights a day with a 50-seat aircraft into a particular city versus two flights a day with a 100 or 130-seat aircraft? Thanks. Thanks,
2: Matt, for this question. I think the issue you're bringing up is really interesting, the idea of frequency versus gauge on routes. And the answer to your question really depends on the type of route. If the route is going to carry a reasonable amount of business travel, the airline's probably going to want to bend toward having more frequency with probably smaller average gauge, meaning fewer number of seats per airplane. Because what business people really want is flexibility around schedule. If a meeting gets out early, you don't want to have to wait six hours for the next flight. Or if the meeting gets out late, you want to make sure that there's likely going to be a flight after the one you may have scheduled. So in a business orientation, you want high frequency. And like I answered about Southwest in the last question, that's one of the things Southwest did really well was high frequency. But big airlines, as you've noticed, tend to use RJ somewhat in their frequency game. Now, if it's a leisure market, people are going to be focused on a lower price. And larger gauge airplanes have a lower cost per seat than small airplanes. A small airplane might have a lower total trip cost, meaning how much will you spend to operate the flight? But if you think about how much do you spend per seat on the plane, the bigger the plane gets, the lower that price is. And so for a leisure route, airlines are going to lean toward flying bigger gauge with less frequency because they can offer a lower price on that plane with that lower unit cost. And also leisure traffic likely isn't going to be as, driven by the time of the flight, unlike business travelers are, they're going to be more driven by the price of the flight. So it's a great question you asked. And it makes me think that maybe someday you need to work in the schedule planning department of an airline, because <laughs> it's the way they think about things all the time. They look at demand between two cities and they say, what's the right blend between gauge and frequency for the type of traffic we expect will buy us on this route? Great question, Matt.
0: So, listeners, let me translate that for you. The answer is it depends. <laughs> so.
2: <laughs> Sorry if that was too geeky, Chris.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, it was the right answer. So that's it.
2: you needed to cover it all. But finer wine is next. But first. Seabury Capital Group is a specialty finance and investment banking firm boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Seabury's award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge, along with state-of-the-art analysis, technology, and solutions, as well as an unmatched depth of relationships with decision-makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburycapital.com. That's Seabury, S-E-A-B-U-R-Y capital dot com. Chris, our finer wine is from Jack Jennings in San Francisco. Hi, Ben and Chris, big fan of the show. I work in the leasing industry and you both provide great color beyond the industry rags, so it's useful to better understanding the heart and soul of an airline operation. I've never written in, but I have a finer wine that I'm honestly just shocked by. I had a first-class round-trip flight from San Francisco to Chicago and back to San Francisco, leaving Sunday and coming back Tuesday. I had to move my flight a day back, so I called in and requested the change. It took a couple of hours of waiting, but everyone's busy these days. They gave me a renewed ticket and even offered a $339 credit for the change, which was great. I arrived at O'Hare today to go back to San Francisco, collect my ticket, and it is an economy ticket departing San Francisco to Chicago. I was told my options were to get on the Chicago-San Francisco flight in economy with no change to my fare. I can call in afterwards to address this, or I can get a refund for the mistaken ticket and find my own way back. So now I'm sitting here paying $1,200 to fly back to San Francisco in economy with zero reassurance that I'm going to be able to get any assistance. I don't expect anything would have been resolved immediately, and I'm glad to be getting back on time, but only the reassurance I received that the case was documented. Sure, I should have confirmed the flight earlier, and I'm honestly shocked how a round-trip ticket could get changed to two one ways. But even more so, the lack of any real assistance seemed to just throw the salt in the wound. I would love to get your take on whether this is truly a finer wine, and if you have any advice on how to approach recouping the lost value, and that would be greatly appreciated as well. Chris, what do you think he should do, and is this a finer wine? Well, Jack,
0: first, thanks for writing in and thanks for listening. You know, I'm going to give this a fine under the category of stuff happens. As I kind of went back and looked at his complaint, you know, I was thinking, okay, the two-hour wait meant the call center was jammed. People were working fast. Sometimes mistakes get made. Then I saw the $339 credit. Hmm, gee, maybe... Did she book me or he booked me in, in a coach seat by accident as they were moving fast? Why am I getting money back on this transaction? So there were little t- kind of telltale signs, but, you know, obviously as he's trying to get home, lots of us have been faced with this this decision of I had a first class seat. The only way to get home is sitting in economy. I'll take it and I'll get home. I don't want to spend the day here at O'Hare. So, you know, I, it does look like it's been documented. There should have been on top of whatever the airline documented that the agents told them or told him, excuse me, uh, he should have his own email confirmations and the like. So he should be able to reconstruct the transaction or whatever the mistake was to go back and, and get some kind of restitution here. So you know, I don't think it was deliberate in any way. And it was probably very frustrating that nobody could help. But at the same time, if they don't have a first class seat to give you, Jack, I'm not sure what they could have done in the moment. So it's certainly worth following up on. He is justified to be frustrated and, and complains, but that's my take and that's what I do. Well, listeners, as we get ready to shut down Airlines Confidential for the week, it's time for our shout outs. And mine is not an attaboy shout out of any kind, uh, but more a moment of reflection. This past Saturday, July 17th, was the 25th anniversary of the TWA 800 tragedy Uh, that was so sad on many levels for many of us who remember it, and perhaps one of the first internet-based conspiracies that now seem to dominate our lives. Sadly, this was the beginning of the end for the ninth life for TWA. I had a lot of friends who worked for the company, and I know what an emotional toll This took on so many people, not to mention the families of those impacted, but uh, just wanted to recognize that event.
2: That's a great uh, recognition, Chris. And I'm sure a lot of our listeners remember that, those who don't know of it. And uh, for those who want to live a more positive aspect of the TWA experience, you can now go stay at the TWA Hotel at JFK, which is a pretty amazing place, actually. There you go. Yeah. Well, my shout out is going to Porter Airlines in Canada. And I don't know if this is an attaboy or a watch out kind of shout out because what Porter has had this great niche flying into Billy Bishop airport, which is the Toronto in-city airport. As far as I know, the airport only airport in the world where you can land at the airport and take a moving sidewalk to downtown, right? (laughs) Pretty amazing. And for many years, they were trying to get the runway expanded Extended, I mean, so they could fly the, at what one point was called the C-Series, now the A220, longer haul from that airport. But now they're moving into Toronto Pearson's airport with real airplanes, not just turboprops. And that's going to be a really tough thing to do, but they have a name and they have a reputation, so maybe they have a better chance than most. It seems to me, Chris, that people just... Don't stop to think that Canada only has about 38 million people in it because you got these two big airlines in Air Canada and WestJet. And yet people are always looking to Canada as the next best airline opportunity and whether it's low cost or others. And now you see Porter going in, changing their business model in a pretty big way. And in this industry, when airlines change their business model, it doesn't always work. You can look at Atlantic Coast becoming Fly Eye or the original America West flying 747s to Japan or things like that. But I hope this works for them. Again, Canada knows Porter. Porter knows Canada. So if there's going to be a third national airline in Canada, go Porter. There you go.
0: Well, with that, thanks for joining us.
2: See you all next week. Have a great week, everyone.
0: This podcast
1: is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.